0: Colin Powell dies, Steve Bannon defies, and the Boston mayoral race, no guys. All this week on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike. Vote for president,
1: i like to you, and me to me. I don't care
2: how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge. Because they're the ones to lead the USA.
0: Thanks for joining us and welcome to episode 376 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. The refusal by the previous administration to cooperate in any way regarding the January 6th insurrection continues. The latest episode involves Steve Bannon the Trump associate who said he won't testify before the Congressional Committee about what he knew in advance about the attack on the Capitol. On Thursday, the House voted 229 to 202 to cite Bannon with contempt of Congress, which could ultimately send him to prison. Benny Thompson, the Mississippi Democrat who heads up the committee investigating January 6, made clear the urgency of the House's action. Our investigation
3: is going forward. We're hearing from witnesses, reviewing documents, analyzing data. Mr. Bannon stands alone in his defiance, and we will not stand for it. We will not allow anyone to derail our work because our work is too important, helping ensure that the future of American democracy is strong and secure.
0: Trump has instructed all of his former associates not to cooperate with the committee, the calculation being that they wait it out as long as possible until the Republicans recapture the House next year and the issue goes away. It's a risk, but it's part of the GOP plan to downplay the assault on the Capitol, lest it become an issue that could hurt them, both in next year's midterms as well as in 2024, when Trump is talking about running again. The long-term prospects for both sides are uncertain. Bannon says he won't cooperate because of executive privilege rights he may not have. He left the White House in 2017, and it's not clear whether he's protected, despite what Trump claims. But a subpoena coming from Congress is not the same as coming from a court, and the House may have to wait for the judicial system to go through its motions before Bannon could be sent to prison. It remains a sad spectacle to watch congressional Republicans go along with validating Trump, Bannon, and the assault on democracy and fair elections. But what could you expect when the former president continues his hallucinogenic view of reality? Not long before the House voted to cite Bannon on Thursday, Trump released this statement. The insurrection took place on November 3rd, Election Day. January 6th was the protest. I'm still hoping Republicans will stand up to denounce this fantasy. I know the odds don't look promising. Remember when you ran away and I got on my
1: knees and begged you not to leave because I go berserk? Well,
2: you left me anyhow and then the days got worse and worse and now you see I've gone completely out of my mind. They're coming to take me away, ha ha, they're coming to take me away, ho ho, hee hee, ha to the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time. And I'll be happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats and they're coming to take me away, ha
0: In the waning weeks of the 2020 presidential race, there was a deluge of books about Donald Trump. One of them was, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump. The author... Stuart Stevens, a longtime Republican strategist whose clients included presidential candidates Bob Dole, George W. Bush, and Mitt Romney, among many others. Notably, he did not support Trump either in 2016 or in 2020 when he wrote this book. Actually, saying he didn't support Trump is an understatement, but this book does much more than tear Trump apart. It's a complete indictment of the Republican Party, and Stewart's grievances start well before 2016. The book has a new preface, which includes the insurrection of January 6th and the GOP's willingness to not only defend the storming of the Capitol, but the effort to deny Joe Biden the presidency. Stewart Stevens, welcome to The Political Junkie. Ken, it's great to be here, man. Thank you for asking me to the party. Uh, thank you. for. We'll, we'll see how well the party goes here after we, <laughs> we finish talking. But, you know, I was trying to come up with the right word for your book. And I think, I think depressing comes to mind, not, not for anything you wrote about Donald Trump. I mean, I don't think there's much new here, but the case you make against the Republican Party, it's depressing, at least to me.
4: I think it's, I, I think it's depressing. And to be honest, um, I think I'm depressing these days, um, which is a weird position for me to be because I've always been an irrepressible optimist. I mean, I was always a guy in campaigns and we'd be down, you know, 30 points 10 days out and I still thought we could win. I mean, I was, I was sort of a joke around the political world that I was a guy that was always optimistic.
0: But that's who you want on your campaign. You want somebody who truly believes or at least thinks it's, it's doable, but... Right now, I mean, this party gave us, that gave us so many giants you know, has been reduced to one that no longer seems to believe in, in small-D democratic rule.
4: You know, the way I ended up writing this book came. You know, a lot
0: of people were wrong in
4: 2016 about Trump, but it's really hard to find anybody who was more wrong than me. Um, I didn't think he'd win the primary. I didn't think he'd win the general. And when he did, I had started asking myself, like, how, why didn't I see this? And I had friends... You know, they would say, well, you know, Trump hijacked the party. This isn't really the party. It's like, I don't know. I can't. I'd like to believe that, but I can't.
0: Do you make the case in the book that Trump didn't engage in a hostile takeover of the party? The GOP was headed in that direction all along, and Trump was in the right place at the right time. A hundred percent.
4: I don't know any other conclusion to come to. Otherwise, there would be an anti-Trump movement
0: in the Republican Party. And there's not. Certainly not among elected officials.
4: Well, I mean, among the party faithful. When Trump says he's the most popular Republican, he has 90 plus percent. It's true. And the party has become Donald Trump. It's a white grievance party
0: now. You know, you mentioned in your book, you talk about, well, you're pretty tough on Republicans of the past. Uh, Barry Goldwater and his vote against the 64 Civil Rights Act. Um, Richard Nixon had his Southern strategy. You talk in your book about Ronald Reagan uh, uh, talking about states' rights while campaigning in Mississippi, and then, as you say, Bush came along with his compassionate conservatism. And then, when Mitt Romney when Mitt Romney lost in twenty twelve, you know the party did its famous autopsy to find out how to grow the party right. and stop its losing streak. But Trump basically ignored every suggestion that came out of that and said, you know, the heck with expanding the party, let's focus on the base, let's focus on resentments. And we saw that from the moment he came down that escalator at Trump Tower talking about Muslims.
4: You know, what's fascinating to me about that so-called autopsy, and I think Reince Priebus, who is head of the party, then, deserves credit for commissioning that. It's always hard to be self-critical. And the conclusions were pretty obvious, but it's good to say them. You know, the party needed to be more inclusive. It needed to appeal to more non-white voters. It needed to appeal more to... Women, particularly women who work outside the home, and younger women. Um, All of those things. And they were presented not just as a political necessity, but as a moral mandate. That if you were going to earn the right to govern this big, changing, cacophonous, confusing, loud country, you needed to reflect that more. And then Trump came along, and it was like, thank God, we don't have to pretend we believe in this. (laughs) We can go back to what we really want to be. And that's why I ended up calling the book It Was All Alive. because I don't think people abandon deeply held beliefs in a few years. It just means you didn't deeply hold them. Now, I mean, a lot of these things that I assumed were values, I don't know what any conclusion to come to, but that they were marketing slogans.
0: But I remember, and I think you mentioned in the book, too, I remember in, in 2012 how outraged the RNC was uh, in the aftermath of that legitimate rape comment from Todd Akin right. in Missouri. And the party wanted him gone. Get rid of him. And then, meanwhile, you know, Trump goes on and insults everyone and berates everyone in his path, including Republicans. Think of what he said about John McCain. And yet the RNC never blinked. Everything was fine. They never. That's, that is the turning point. Um, and to me, the
4: quintessential moment is um, in December of 2015, when Trump came out for a Muslim ban, and if the Republican Party was going to stand for anything, it was the Constitution, and a Muslim ban is a religious test, and the party should have done exactly what they did with Todd Akin, and they didn't. And once you allow that to happen, it only gets worse. And I know in a political sense why, you know, all these 16 people that were running, why they focused on each other, not Trump. And it was because they could not believe that the Republican Party would nominate someone who was a failed casino owner who talked in public about having sex with his daughter. They just didn't think that was possible, nor did I. So all you had to do was get one-on-one with Donald Trump and you
0: were going to beat him. That was the old Ted Cruz strategy that sure. he went, you know, he decided not to attack Trump because he said there's no way this guy can survive and I'll pick up his supporters when he loses. Yes, and you know, Trump was threatening
4: to run as an independent. He bullied the party. But look, I, 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 there's a lot of excuses for this, but it still is a moment when and our system parties should play a circuit breaker function, and no one pulled the circuit breaker in the Republican Party on Trump.
0: You know there were so many things in your book that we could talk about for hours. So many fascinating contradictions. Um, and I wrote something down here. I mean, why was Nick you know, the the conservative organization dedicated to electing the most anti-gay candidates possible? Why was Nick filled with gays in its ranks? How could evangelical groups back a candidate? who must have violated all Ten Commandments. (laughs) How do Republicans blast President Biden's programs as budget-busting when they were all for Trump's tax cuts that swell the deficit? I mean, it goes on and on.
4: Yeah, so uh, it was all a lie. They didn't believe this stuff. And ultimately in life, you believe what you'll fight for. And... They didn't fight for any of this. So I I don't know any conclusion to come to, but they don't believe in this. And I think it's become just about power. I don't think the Republican Party is a political party in the sense that we've known political parties, mostly in America. It's not, it's it's really a cartel. It exists for one purpose, to elect Republicans and beat Democrats, for the sake of power to no purpose. And there is no coherent conservative American governing philosophy that anyone can articulate now. It just doesn't exist. I mean, say what you will about someone like Elizabeth Warren. She can articulate a concept of government, a center-left concept. You can argue with it. She'll argue back. She'll be articulate. There's something there. There's nothing there on the center-right. It's just about power. I just don't think the party's worth saving, and I think that you have to really burn it to the ground and start over. I, you know, spent 30 years or so pointing out flaws in the Democratic Party, but the conclusion I have now is the Democratic Party is the last best hope to save democracy in the country. I think it's very much an open question whether or not American democracy in any recognizable form is going to survive the decade.
0: You know, I remember back, you know, back in the old days when there were congressmen like uh, John Russelo or, or John Schmitz, you know, John Birchs of the far right. But they were mostly dismissed and they were they were certainly not the focus of the media. Now you have people like Josh Hawley and Matt Gaetz and and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar. And you, and you wonder, is this the future of the Republican Party? I mean, even when Trump finally departs from the scene, is Trumpism here to stay? Oh, 100%. Trumpism is what the party wants to be.
4: No one has made Josh Hawley, right? I mean, here's a guy, went to this, you know, fancy prep school in Missouri, went to Stanford, taught at St. George's in London, went to Yale Law School, and he's running against the elites. Really, Josh? Really? Um, And all of what the decertification of the election was about was race. The votes they were trying to throw out were overwhelmingly black votes. So this is what they want to be. It's a white grievance party. And you look at the legislations that are being introduced and passed in these states after January 6th. And it's all about trying to change the rules. So before the demographic tide sweeps away the Republican Party, they're trying to change the rules.
0: You know, I'm thinking, um, uh, you know, listening to what you're saying, um, and I also, uh, it makes me think about this week's death of Colin Powell and, you know, all those what-ifs. You know, what if he ran that year? What if he beat Bill Clinton? Uh, what if he led the Republican Party in a new direction? Do you ever think about that? And, and while this is a ridiculous question to ask, you know, how likely would the Republican Party of today nominate a Colin Powell for president?
4: Well, they wouldn't nominate him because he's pro-choice. You know, there was a time... I don't know, it's not ancient history, A dozen years ago, I'd have to do the math, when there were more people living under pro-choice Republican governors than pro-life Republican governors, because um, you had Schwarzenegger, Pataki, Tom Ridge, all these big state governors who were Republicans, Bill Weld or Salucci, Massachusetts, they were pro-choice and they were Republicans. That line has really been hardened on both sides of the park, you know, both sides of the aisle. It's very difficult to be a pro-life or anti-abortion Democrat. But, you know, one of the conclusions I came to thinking about all this, and I thought about that question you're asking a lot, like what if Colin Powell, what if Mitt Romney had won? What if there had not been a 9-11 and George Bush could have continued along the path that he started out as president? I mean, the first thing that George Bush, big piece of legislation he had was No Child Left Behind. And you go back and you look at that signing photo, and he has Ted Kennedy over his right shoulder. I mean, today that would be presented like in a war tribunal in the Republican Party. Looking back on it, I really think the last best chance we had to save the party from this was probably 9-11. Because had Bush not become a wartime president, he would have led the party in a very different direction. I mean, if you go back and you read George Bush's acceptance speech at the 2000 Republican Convention in Philadelphia, It reads like a document from a lost civilization. It's like something from the Mayans. I mean, it's all about compassion and
0: humility and service. During last month's uh, recall vote in California, Democrats linked the leading Republican candidate to Trump. And in less than two weeks, Virginia is going to vote for a new governor, and, and the Democratic candidate Terry McAuliffe is all but trying to morph Glenn Youngkin into Trump. How do you see that race? And I think my bigger question is, if McAuliffe wins or if he loses, what message might that say to what, what, about what to expect?
4: You know, we always look at these off-year stuff and overestimate. But this, this one campaign.
0: seems significant. Well, they all do at the time.
4: I, I, listen, if I was running the Terry McAuliffe campaign, I would go 100% negative. I don't think you're going to raise his favorables. I would say one message. If you didn't vote for Donald Trump on November 3rd, 2020, why would you vote for Donald Trump on November 2nd, 2021? Because Glenn Youngkin is Donald Trump. He's Donald Trump's candidate. Trump lost by 10 points. Youngkin needs about 300,000 Biden-Youngkin voters. That's the only message I would be talking about. I think that's the only thing the race is about. And I would drive that home. The reason that Donald Trump is interested in in who the hell wins the Virginia governor's race is because he's interested in these these governor's races and the state legislative races, because in 2024, when he runs again, which he will, he wants to be able to control these governors and legislatures to have them come in and in close races overturn the election. That's just that's the plan. I mean, they're not. not not even really shy about. And that's the end of democracy. The Republican Party has failed completely. A total moral collapse. The Democratic Party, they have to come together and realize that what is at stake here is democracy itself.
0: We're talking about the future of the Republican Party, but what about the future of Stuart Stevens? I mean, and the reason I ask that question is, You know, in your book, you know, you rip apart some of the party's favorites, like people like Ronald Reagan, you know, the sainted Ronald Reagan. You don't you don't hold back on anything. So who hires you as a campaign consultant?
4: I was drawn to the Republican Party in part because of a concept of personal responsibility that the party pretended to believe in. And I actually believed in that. And I have to hold myself responsible. I was part of this. Why didn't I see this? Why didn't I do something? I have a lot of regret about it and a a lot of remorse about it. But I don't know what to do about that except go forward. I can't tell you how it's going to end. But I don't think you get into fights because you think you're going to win. You get into fights because you think they're important. It's a strange feeling to kind of get to my age and look back at the party
0: and wish I had done things differently. And I do. Stuart Stevens is, I think, a former Republican Party campaign consultant. His 2020 book, It Was All a Lie, How the Republican Party Became Donald Trump, is out with a new preface. Stuart, there's there's important stuff here. It was great having you on the program.
4: Thanks, Ken. I appreciate you giving me a chance to talk.
0: Lies,
2: Lies,
4: you're telling me that you'll be true.
0: The big story on November 2nd is obviously the race for governor of Virginia. There's also a gubernatorial contest in New Jersey, where Democratic incumbent Phil Murphy is thought to have a sizable lead over Republican challenger Jack Chitterelli. Also on the ballot are many mayoral elections around the country, such as in New York, Detroit, Minneapolis, Atlanta, Seattle, Miami, Cleveland, Buffalo, New Orleans, just to name a few. In Boston, history is about to be made. For more than 200 years, the city has elected only white male mayors. Everyone from John Fitzgerald and James Michael Curley in the old days to Kevin White and Ray Flynn and Tom Menino more recently, they were all white men. They were Irish, they were Italian, but they were also white and male. Until this year, the mayor was Marty Walsh. When he was picked by President Biden as Labor Secretary, he was succeeded by Kim Janey, who was black and female. But as acting mayor, she finished out of the running in the September nonpartisan primary. And so the candidates going into the November general election, two women, one will be the city's next mayor, and history will be written. Anthony Brooks is the senior political reporter for radio station WBUR. He is white and male, but he's not running for mayor. (laughs) Anthony, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Yeah,
1: it's good to be back. And, uh, yeah, I'm afraid this isn't my year to run for mayor
0: of Boston. Well, but it's a fascinating election. And you know something? I think those of us who are political junkies are always thrilled to see history like this being made. And, And in this case, the election of a first female mayor. Are voters excited about that, too, or... Or are they more interested in electing someone who'll get the job done? It,
1: it's a good question. I mean, how do we measure whether voters are excited? In the preliminary election, the turnout was very low. And that's typical for sort of an off-cycle preliminary city election. That said, the people who are engaged, and, and including people like me who follow this, are excited because, as you mentioned in the intro, this is hugely historic. For over 200 years, only white men have run this city. Now, for the first time, we're going to have one of two women who both identify as people of color leading a city that is increasingly progressive, increasingly diverse. And honestly, Ken, this is way, way overdue.
0: So I think it's hugely exciting for the city of Boston. So tell us who the two candidates are and uh, what do they represent? According to polls, the frontrunner is
1: Michelle Wu. She's an Asian-American. She's the daughter of Taiwanese immigrants. She grew up in Chicago. She came to Boston to go to Harvard and then return and study, and, uh, to study law with Elizabeth Warren. And she's uh, very much um, a sort of acolyte of Elizabeth Warren. She's a progressive. She runs on a big progressive vision for the city that includes free public transportation, that includes a Green New Deal for Boston and tackling the big issues around racial inequality and the racial wealth gap. Um, She's running against fellow city councilor Anissa Saibi-George. Anissa Saibi-George is the daughter of a a Polish uh, immigrant mother and a father who came from Tunisia, uh, an Arab Muslim. She identifies also as a person of color. It's probably fair to describe her as the moderate in the race. Uh, although in any other city, she would probably be seen as pretty progressive as well. She supported people like Senator Markey in that race against uh, Congressman Joe Kennedy. She was a big backer of Ayanna Pressley, um, Massachusetts' first black uh, woman to go to Congress. Uh, but her vision of what state of what city government can do is more
0: restrained than Michelle Wu's. Kim Janey, the acting mayor, um, uh, is a black woman who didn't make it out of the primary. She apparently split the black vote with another African-American female candidate. Boston has a history of seeing race in its politics. Um, I, hate to, I hate to admit this, but I still remember the candidacy of Louise Day Hicks from more than 50 years ago. <laughs> Sorry. But anyway, black voters have a, have a lot riding on this year's election. And as you mentioned, Ayanna Presley uh, was elected three years ago, uh, an election that excited the African-American community. At the risk of generalization, are black voters excited about this choice? Are disappointed? Are they enthused? What do you see?
1: Well, I think initially it was a disappointment for black voters, especially that segment of black voters that are really political activists. They really thought this was their year. Uh, But in fact, there were three black candidates in the preliminary election. There was acting Mayor Kim Janey, City Councilor Andrea Campbell, and John Barrows, um, who was um, the Economic and Development Director for former Mayor Marty Walsh. They were all black they split the black vote. And what black voters can take heart in is that a plurality of Boston voters voted for a black woman. But because the vote was split, it ended up um, giving way to Michelle Wu, who was the top vote getter in any case, and uh, Asabi George, um, who was an Arab American. So in terms of, of, of where the black vote goes, uh, Acting Mayor Kim Janey has endorsed Michelle Wu. Michelle Wu has been endorsed pretty much by everyone in the city, it seems like, and that's one of the reasons she's the front runner. But, you know, what's interesting about the black vote in the city is it's always been key for a long time now, even all those white mayors, whether it was Marty Walsh or going back to Tom Menino or Ray Flynn, they wouldn't have been able to be elected without the support of black voters. So I think you are at this point, if the polls are correct, Michelle Wu has a big advantage among black voters and that if she does win, that's gonna be one of the reasons why she'll be successful.
0: I'm gonna play uh, commercials for the two candidates. Here's one from Michelle Wu.
2: The Boston we love is a city that takes care of each other. Where hard work meets big dreams with grit and resilience. But for too many, during this pandemic and well before, it's been impossible to dream when you're fighting to hold on. Fighting to afford to stay. Fighting for our kids. Fighting a system that wasn't built for us, doesn't speak our languages, doesn't hear our voices. I'm Michelle Wu, and I'm running for mayor to make Boston a
4: city for everyone.
0: And here's one for Anissa Asabi-George.
4: As a teacher, I had a front row seat to the challenges our kids face every single day. Housing insecurity, food insecurity, lack of economic opportunity. To have a teacher in the mayor's office leading with those experiences will have such an impact on our families across the city. I'm running for mayor not just to get through this crisis. I wanna be mayor of this city for its future, for this period of sustained recovery and rebirth. When I hear these challenges, when I see what's happening, I don't just talk. I turn around and I do.
0: Anthony, by the way, in that last commercial, I want to play something that Asabi George said.
4: Growing up in Dorchester as the daughter of immigrants, I was
0: a little bit... Uh, Dorchester. You know, that made me smile because I know her Boston accent and, and the fact that Michelle Wu grew up in Chicago have somehow become major issues of concern in the race.
1: Yeah, Ken, this has become quite a thing about uh, Anissa Saibi, George's accent. We, we should stress that this is authentic.
0: She grew up in Dorchester in wait, Boston. Wait, not, not, is... not, not Dorchester, Dorchester. <laughs> Say yeah, it right Dor- here. Dorchester. That's right. Well, the point
1: I wanted to make, <laughs> though, is the night of the preliminary election— Uh, When she won one of the two slots that advanced her to the general election, she had a great time rallying her family and her supporters. And she said to them, I'm going to be the teacher, the mother and the mayor that gets it done. And she had a lot of fun leaning into that accent. But there's sort of a serious thing that's going on here because she actually makes the case that it matters that she's the candidate who grew up in Boston. She was born here. She spent her whole life here. Now, Michelle Wu grew up in Chicago and moved here. But the thing about Wu that you've got to realize is that she is now wanting to be mayor of a city where most people weren't born in Massachusetts. So in a way, she fits in perfectly well. This is a city, once upon a time, that embraced tribal politics. So Asai B. George's argument that she's the native from Dorchester, Uh, you know, would have meant a lot more than it does today. But today, Boston is a city of younger voters, of Latinos, of Asians, of immigrants, of lots of folks who weren't born here. And uh, most of them at this point are backing Michelle Wu.
0: I saw, I mentioned earlier that uh, Elizabeth Warren was campaigning with Michelle Wu. And I see that many police and other unions are backing a B. George. Is the race, is this accurate to say that the race is seen as a a progressive versus centrist? I mean, I think it is. I I think a more precise
1: definition of the distinction, though, is that it's a race between Michelle Wu, who has a big, broad vision of what city government can and should do, whereas Aside George isn't necessarily opposed to the sort of political principles behind that, She's more grounded in the reality of what a mayor can do. For example, Michelle Wu wants to make public transportation free. Aside from George doesn't say, I'm against that. She says, a mayor can't do that because the state runs the system of public transportation in Boston. So her point is, you got to stick to your knitting. A mayor's job is about filling potholes. It's about making sure the schools work. It's about safe neighborhoods. So it's a more limited but more concrete view of what city government can do. Whereas Michelle Wu says this is the time for government to lean in and respond to big issues around racial inequality. She has a green new deal. She not only wants to plant trees and make the city greener, but she wants to also tackle these big issues around ra- the racial wealth gap and that kind of thing.
0: They just held their second debate. Uh, did anything jump out at you as a as a game changer? I mean, I know they're both Democrats, but has it gotten heated? <laughs> It has gotten heated, and I think it's because Asabi George uh, is reading
1: the polls and she is trying to knock uh, Michelle Wu off her game, so she was a lot more confrontational. And you really did see these differences that I was referring to earlier, where there are sort of two competing views of what city government can and should be doing. And uh, no question that Asabi, George is a little more aggressive, a little more pushy. But, you know, I think Michelle Wu's um, game is to do what front runners do and to not take the bait and and stay calm and stick to her message. And there's going to be one more debate. Uh, on Monday night, and I expect uh, to hear much of the same thing from both of them.
0: I've seen polls that show Wu with a sizable lead. I, I know we still have nearly two weeks to go, but do you think that that lead is, is legitimate? I do think that lead is legitimate. I mean, I'll stress, as I always do, that a poll
1: is only a snapshot of the moment, but we've seen two polls in the last couple of weeks. One of them was a poll that we did, WBUR, and then the Boston Globe and Suffolk University did did a poll just uh, earlier this week. They both found the same thing. Michelle Wu is leading by more than 30 points. She not only leads among black voters, Asian voters, Latino voters, she leads among white voters. So she and she leads among men and women. She leads in all demographics. Um, uh, Asaibi George's strength uh, is in predominantly white working-class neighborhoods like the part of Dorchester that she grew up in, South Boston, and that simply isn't enough to win. So if this is a poll, uh, if a poll is only a snapshot of a moment, this moment is just a week or two before Election Day. It's looking pretty good for Michelle Wu, but, you know, there's there's still a couple more weeks to go, as you said.
0: Let me ask you the most important question of all. Your Red Sox were down three games to two to the Houston Astros. <laughs> now we're recording this interview on Thursday. Tomorrow night is game six. I know there's there's no rooting in politics, but there is in baseball. What do you say? <laughs>
1: Well, I think a lot of Boston fans, probably myself included, got out in front of ourselves uh, when, you know, the Red Sox had those two incredible games where they just demolished Houston and Houston really looked like uh, a wounded dog. But now I got to admit, we're back in Houston. The Sox have to win two in a row. I like their chances uh, with Nathan Avaldi on, on the mound uh, in game one, uh, but uh,
0: winning two in a row is going to be tough. Anthony Brooks is the senior political reporter for WBUR in Boston. Good luck with your team, says this New York Yankees fan. And (laughs) and really, keep up the great work covering the mayor race. It's always a pleasure having you on the show.
1: Thanks, Ken. It's always a pleasure talking with you.
0: Powell died on Monday. The nation's first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, National Security Advisor, and Secretary of State, he was 84 years old. He died of complications of COVID-19, and though he was fully vaccinated, he was suffering from multiple myeloma, which weakened his immune system. Americans from all walks of life expressed sadness over his passing, starting with President Biden.
1: Think of our Colin Powell. He's not only a dear friend and a patriot, one of our great military leaders, and a man of overwhelming decency.
0: Of course, there's always Donald Trump, who, in his own inimitable way, offered this comment: quote, "Wonderful to see Colin Powell, who made big mistakes on Iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction, be treated in death so beautifully by the fake news media. Hope that happens to me someday." He was a classic rhino, if even that, always being the first to attack other Republicans. He made plenty of mistakes, but anyway, may he rest in peace, Every time you think Trump has reached the bottom, along comes something like this. Powell served two tours in Vietnam where he was widely decorated. As National Security Advisor to President Reagan, he helped negotiate arms treaties with Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev. As Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under the first President Bush, he was the architect of the 1991 Persian Gulf War, Operation Desert Storm, that quickly crushed Iraq's incursion into Kuwait, defeating Saddam Hussein's forces with relatively few American casualties. The major blot on Powell's record came in the aftermath of the attacks in the U.S. on 9-11. The second President Bush, along with now Secretary of State Powell, decided to strike back, not only in Afghanistan, where Osama bin Laden, the mastermind of the attacks, was thought to be hiding out, but against Iraq, where U.S. intelligence was set to show that Saddam was holding weapons of mass destruction. Powell, in an infamous speech at the U.N. Security Council in February of 2003, made the case for war in Iraq, a decision he later regretted. On The Political junkie, some four and a half years ago, we had Lawrence Wilkerson, Powell's then chief of staff, on the program. He talked about what went into Powell's UN speech and revealed that even as it was being given, Powell and he both had serious doubts about its veracity. I'm replaying that segment now. The Bush decision to go to war in Iraq was based on intelligence information later proved inaccurate that said Saddam Hussein had stockpiled weapons of mass destruction. But the reason it was most believable was because it came from a reliable source, Secretary of State Colin Powell. Fourteen years ago, he gave a memorable speech at the United Nations.
3: One of the most worrisome things that emerges from the thick intelligence file we have on Iraq's biological weapons is the existence of mobile production facilities used to make biological agents. Let me take you inside that intelligence file and share with you what we know from eyewitness accounts. We have first-hand descriptions of biological weapons factories on wheels and on rails. The trucks and train cars are easily moved and are designed to evade detection by inspectors. In a matter of months, they can produce a quantity of biological poison equal to the entire amount that Iraq claimed to have produced in the years prior to the Gulf War. Every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources. These are not assertions. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence.
0: It wasn't until years later that we learned there were no weapons of mass destruction. Saddam did not have chemical weapons that he said he did. Lawrence Wilkerson was Powell's chief of staff at the time and has long since been an outspoken critic of what was going on back in 2003. Colonel Wilkerson, welcome to The Political Junkie.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: I have to confess it's a little easy conducting this kind of interview, knowing that we know much more now than what we knew back in 2003, but let me start from the beginning. What was your role in General Powell's speech at the Security Council?
2: I was the one who technically and graphically and organizationally had to put the thing together. Um, and let me, let me start by addressing your intimation at the beginning and, indeed, President Trump, then-candidate Trump's, intimation. This was not an intelligence failure in the nature of a failure like Pearl Harbor or like 9-11 or whatever it was an intelligence failure, failure only insofar as it extended to the number one and the new number two man, Tenet and McLaughlin, respectively, at the CIA, and their force over the other 15 entities in the U.S. intelligence community, and most dramatically to the vice president's office and the Douglas Fyfe in the Pentagon, who ran an alternative intelligence operation. They convinced the president that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction, and I'm sad to say convinced my boss, too, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. So it was not strictly a failure of the institutional apparatus serving America in the realm of intelligence, so much as it was a use of that apparatus, very selected use of that apparatus, by the vice president to convince the president to go to war.
0: In your opinion, was the decision to go to war in Iraq based on faulty intelligence, or was it based on lies?
2: I think it was based on lies. I think the intelligence was there. I've subsequently, uh, along with about 400 of my students doing uh, really, really good research over the past dozen years or so, discovered that there were people who knew uh, with some degree of confidence that Saddam Saddam Hussein had curtailed his three programs, chemical, biological, and nuclear most seriously curtailed his nuclear program for a number of reasons we need not go into, but he didn't want that to be public. He didn't want it to be public because Iran was his number one enemy, and he felt he needed Iran to continue to think that he had some of these weapons, and that's understandable. But we used that, we being Cheney fight and the crew that helped him, we used that to craft uh, an intelligence picture that looked professional, looked official. And was prima facie evidence for going to war? Now, let me hasten to add, it's my considered opinion that even if we had not had that intelligence, if they hadn't been successful in fabricating that intelligence and presenting it to the American people, we still would have gone to war. But that made it a lot easier.
0: At the time, at the time uh, General Powell gave that speech, was there any doubts in your mind, in, in Powell's mind, regarding the intelligence?
2: Absolutely. Uh, At one point, I wrote out my resignation letter, put it in my central drawer, and took it out periodically and looked at it. Uh, I called my wife and said, I'm leaving. Uh, She said, think about it hard. If you leave, there will be few left there to support him. Uh, I subsequently decided not to leave. Um, i was very concerned about a number of aspects of it we were asked to do it in five days and five nights think about that for a minute five days and five nights and you're asking the secretary of state who's not an intelligence professional to do this he went right back to dr rice and said we need more time she said i understand i understand i'll go to the president the president told her no we've already made the public announcement he's doing it and so we had to do it you bet i was ready to leave But I didn't. Uh, I'll go to my grave, rueing the fact that I did not submit that letter and walk out.
0: Did Powell have doubts, too, from the beginning?
2: Yes, he did. Uh, The most dramatic moment out at CIA CIA headquarters came when he grabbed me by the stacking swivel, as we say in the military, uh, and he'd never done that before, and sort of pushed me into a room that was empty in the National Intelligence Council area, And he sat me down, he looked around like he was inspecting for bugs, and he said, listen, I am sick and tired of this business of Saddam Hussein's connections with Al-Qaeda. There is no hard evidence, there is no proof. I want to take it out. And I thought he, I I think he thought I was going to object. I looked at him and I said, boss, done. I think it stinks too. So, I went to the speechwriter who was at her computer banging away with the speech, and I essentially said, we're going to have to do a really difficult thing. We're going to have to go through this and extract everything that has to do with Baghdad and terrorism, particularly al-Qaeda. She said, no problem. We'll do it. An hour later, Mr. Tennant walks into the DCI conference room where we're rehearsing with, I think we had Dr. Rice there that day, Richard Armitage, Deputy Secretary of State, and a number of others. We're rehearsing. And he drops a bombshell on the table. He essentially tells Powell and the rest of the people in the room that they have just gotten results from high-level interrogation of a high-level al-Qaeda operative substantiating contacts between the Muqabarat in Iraq and al-Qaeda, including training them in how to use chemical and biological weapons. Powell turned to me and said, put it back in. We know now that that was Sheikh al-Libby. It was in Egypt. He was being waterboarded multiple times. There were no U.S. personnel present, and Mr. Tenet took that as solid evidence that there were contacts between al-Qaeda and Baghdad. And he did that because he was under directions from the vice president to do it.
0: Tell me, tell me how you first began working with Colin Powell.
2: He grabbed me out of the Naval War College where I was on the faculty. He's doing, in January. A, lot of, he's
0: doing a lot of grabbing, isn't he?
2: Yeah, January 1989. Actually, I, I got a call from my admiral, which wasn't uncommon because I was sort of a special assistant to the admiral who's president of the Naval War College at the time. He says, come down to my office. And I come down there, and he says, you got a call from the National Security Advisor. I said, are you kidding me? He said, no, go take it. So I picked up the phone, and someone put... Powell on, and he said, can you be in the Pentagon on 25 January for an interview? I said, yes, of course. (laughs) It started there.
0: Is it fair to assume that the two of you have had multiple conversations about his 2003 speech in the years since?
2: No, it's not fair to assume. We've had a few, but uh, it's a very difficult subject for us to broach even, let alone discuss.
0: Interesting. You know, I I mean, I know he has results... I have a, a piece of tape here uh, in an interview he gave years later uh, with Al Jazeera. Uh, let, me, let me play a part of this speech.
3: I gave that speech on four days' notice uh, based on an intelligence estimate that had been done months before and provided to the Congress. And every word in that speech was gone over by uh, the director of Central Intelligence and his deputy director and all of their experts. And up till 2 o'clock in the morning of that day, they verified everything that was in that speech. So it was nothing that I made up. It was nothing that I stuck in there. And in fact, some people tried to stick extra things in there that the intelligence community wouldn't verify with multi-sourcing, and I said no. And so when I presented that information, it was information that the president believed in, information that my colleagues in government believed in, in the national security world, Mr. Cheney, Mr. Rumsfeld, Dr. Rice, It was information that the United Kingdom and and other nations believed in. And so I presented the best evidence that we had. It was evidence that persuaded the Congress of the United States months earlier to pass overwhelmingly a resolution of support if the president decided that military action was required. And so that's the basis upon which I presented it. Now, because it was me and because it was the UN, it became a huge event which is what we wanted it to be. That's why I was sent to do it. But it turned out, as we discovered later, that a lot of the sourcing that had been attested to by the intelligence community was wrong. Uh, Imagine how I felt the day that uh, they finally came in and said to me, well, you know, we don't have four independent sources for that biological warfare van. It's one guy, and he's loopy, and he's in a German jail, and we've never talked to him.
0: You know, I hear, him, I, I hear him talking with regret in his voice. And, of course, it's, I mean, we're talking about a monumental speech and a monumental decision, given the fact that thousands of Americans have died and hundreds of thousands of, you know, of, of Iraqis have died. But, but he doesn't sound angry. Does he, do you get the sense he felt that he was being used by the administration?
2: I don't know. I can't speak for him. I can tell you that for a week at the end of his term as Secretary of State, neither he nor I exchanged a single word, veritably, and were at odds on even speaking about things because we both were so angry. Um, And I didn't know the half of it at that point. I mean, I'm the one who did the research. I'm the one who's had 400 more students on two campuses beavering away in the archives. I'm the one who's really looked at it hard because I had the motivation to do so. Think about it for a moment. He really didn't have much motivation to do so because what does he do if he discovers what I've discovered with the wealth and power behind his name? I mean, does he speak out and shame everybody in the Bush administration? No, that's not Colin Powell's way. That wasn't George Marshall's way. That wasn't Dwight Eisenhower's way. Uh, They suck it up and go on with life. I'm not that person. I'm a lowly Army colonel who got caught up in all this, and uh, now I'm an academic who studies presidential decision-making post-World War II, and I can tell you that there are crimes all over that tapestry. Don't just pick on Colin Powell and George W. Bush, Richard Nixon, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson and the talking Gulf incident, and a host of others I can quote to you are just as bad, if not worse. So this is American decision-making in the national security state. This is nothing new.
0: It's clear I hear from the outrage in your voice and the outrage I did not hear in, in General Powell's voice. Has he ever talked to you about how outspoken you are about your rage and his lack of rage?
2: Only from time to time in terms of asking me to calm down a bit, uh, to which I pay little attention. Uh, and he knows that. Uh, have I irritated him or have I given him some space to, in the background, move around in? I don't know. I suspect the latter. But, uh, you know, you, you, you pick your sides and you fight your fights.
0: Larry Wilkerson was Colin Powell's longtime chief of staff and helped to prepare his famous or infamous speech before the U.N. Security Council in 2003, making the case for war against Iraq. Colonel Wilkerson, thank you so much for your time.
2: Uh, thank thank you for giving me the opportunity Ken make a grave for the unknown soldier Nestled in your hollow shoulder the unknown soldier.
0: this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin, or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram, at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please be safe. I'll see you soon.